Uh, welcome to everyone. Today's the second installment in our series on the Noble Eightfold Path, the Ario Atangiko Mako. And uh, this is the second path factor, Sama Sankapo, white intention. It's quite close to what we also might call white thought. We will continue eight installments every Saturday, Sunday, noon at 12.15 p.m. Yesterday we talked about wide view, and the wide view goes ahead, and we can easily understand that, because in order to have white intention, we got to know what is white intention. And if you don't know what is white intention, what is wrong intention, well, how could we practice it? If we do know right intention and wrong intention, uh, then we have right view to that extent that is partner of a perfect conviction of a wholesome opinion of um, beneficial understanding. We can translate samadhiti in different ways. A part of it is that we do know which intentions are leading out of suffering and which ones are leading us deeper into suffering. So we can see how from having the wide view, uh, the other path factors will gradually unfold. So how did the Buddha define that second path factor? Maybe we start with uh, Mitcha. Sankapo, the bad or unwholesome or the wrong intention. And the Buddha has described three unbeneficial, unwholesome, wrong intentions, namely Karma Sankapo, Vyapada Sankapo, and Vihingsa Sankapo. Karma Sankapo is intentions of sensuality. Anything relating to a sensual desire in, in a very wide sense. Sensuality, the way the Buddha talks about it, is not just an outright passion, but even little things like you know, wanting the body to feel comfortable and having the wide temperature, not too hot, not too cold. And this is part of uh, the central intentions. Not just you know, coarse desires, you know, but also quite refined ones. The beautiful music, beautiful art, paintings, you know, even very re refined form of the central engagement, central intentions, but still come under centrality here. And the second one, Vyapada Sankapo, the intentions of ill will or anger, 
and vihingsa vitako intentions of the harming or cruelty. We were actually just discussing that this morning with the other monks, and there's different translations for Vyapada in particular, Vihingsa, and how to distinguish these, and what it seems even studying the way the Buddha used it. I don't think it's actually possible to draw a clear dividing line between Vihingsa and Vyapada, but both terms together basically cover everything on the side of anger, aversion, hatred, cruelty, and the wish to harm others. It doesn't really matter so much how exactly we define that, but both these terms cover the whole side of dosa, of aversion, anger, and cruelty, and so on. These ones are usually easier to see for people. And most people already have you know, the view that uh, harming others is not a good thing. The more tricky one is often uh, sensuality. This is more difficult to see. Many people feel that uh, engaging with uh, sensual desires in a refined or somewhat restrained way is nothing unwholesome about it. But in terms of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha is not only talking about what is unwholesome and wholesome in terms of good and bad karma, but the Eightfold Path is meant to lead us even beyond good karma and beyond good birth uh, to the end of karma and to the full liberation of the heart and to the full extirpation of craving and dukkha. And for that, the even refined forms of sensuality would still be under a wrong intention. However, there is also sometimes the view that anger, aversion and harming may have exceptions when it's actually good, maybe say for terrorists. <laughs> if I'm angry, or I feel hatred, or I want to destroy terrorists, some people may claim this is actually not bad. The Buddha has never made any qualification there. So although the Dhamma would never endorse terrorist acts, it would always oppose them. But if we oppose any form of evil by becoming evil ourselves, so to speak, by having anger, hatred, and wanting to destroy and harm, it's impossible to get rid of evil in that way. But what then happens is then there will be evil in my own heart as well. So for these unwholesome attentions, the Buddha hasn't given any exception or any justification. And if someone is acting very bad and very harmful, if we have thoughts and intentions of anger and harm and arising against this person in our own heart, we would be still on the wrong side of the path, there would still be in a, the wrong intention. We can certainly form the intention that these beings should deepen their understanding and change their behavior. We can also say that, we can express it, we can also act in ways to try to prevent it. 
but never coming from the motivation of anger and harming. In fact, it's very useful to always first make sure that these intentions are not there in our mind before we interfere with others, even if we are convinced they are acting wrongly. So intentions of sensuality, intentions of anger, evil, aversion, harming and cruelty, that's the wrong side. So what are the good intentions? What is the right intention? Nekama Sankapo, Abhyapada Sankapo, and Avihingsa Sankapo. So thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of letting go, the opposite of sensuality. And then for the other ones, the Buddha just uses a negation. And this is a feature of the Pali language. Uh, the Pali often likes to express things which in English you might express with a positive term simply by a negation of a negative term. And sometimes people may wonder, now, why did the Buddha not say what some intention is um, thoughts of letting go, intentions of letting go, and maybe intentions of metta, of loving-kindness. And sure enough, loving-kindness would fit the bill, and loving-kindness is a form of uh, non-anger and non-cruelty. But the nice thing about these terms the Buddha uses is that they're very wide and open, because there's many other emotions and intentions other than metta, that are also white intention. For example, in the karuna, the intention, may all beings be free from pain and suffering. May all beings be freed from problems and trouble. The compassion is also non-anger, non-cruelty. But for example, in the equanimity, if a person is really equanimous, neither liking nor disliking, this is also a form of non-cruelty. This is also a form of um, a non-anger, non-aversion. For example, gratitude. <laughs> if there's gratitude in, in the heart, and the anger doesn't, doesn't arise. For example, patience. For example, in, uh, empathy, and sympathy, for example, in respect and devotion. So there's many other emotions which also are non-anger and non-cruelty, and they are included. So once we understand which ones are the goodies, which ones are the baddies, the next task is to deliberately diminish the bad ones and to deliberately develop the good ones. And uh, we talked about how wide view goes ahead. 
And once we understand what is good and bad, we can then develop it. However, one little warning there to everyone. Uh, sometimes people have a major breakthrough and you know, they develop wide view and that can go relatively quickly. Although it's not easy to change one's conviction and one's view, uh, once one changes it, it can be a fairly quick process. However, then following up on that takes much, much longer and is really a hard slog for almost everyone. So even once we know that uh, angry thoughts and thoughts of harming are bad and I don't want to do that anymore, if we have mindfulness, we will notice there's still quite a bit of these kind of intentions and thoughts arising. And even more so in, the, in terms of centrality, in the central thoughts, uh, they're very sticky, very difficult to abandon. And this is quite normal. So we, we need some patience there. Although our understanding may already be there, our wide view may be there, and we know exactly we shouldn't have these kind of intentions, then we still sneak in. And there's a task you know, of uh, years and decades of practice and developing samadhi and wisdom you know, to ultimately you know, completely abandon them. One has to allow oneself you know, some time for that. And as long as these intentions don't spill over into action and speech, you know, there's no great harm done. We have to be mindful of them and then continue making the effort of abandoning them and developing the wholesome ones. So how do we abandon thoughts of sensuality? For example, we're contemplating the nature of this physical body. If you look at the nature of the body under the skin, with blood and bones, the central desire towards bodies will diminish. So if we direct our attention to the nature of this body, what we call a super contemplation, there's a very effective way of abandoning the thoughts of sensuality towards the body. We may also have intentions of sensuality regarding food. How do we abandon that? Quite a few people may be interested in that. Even if you're not aiming for the burner, you may be aiming for a few kilos less body weight, improving your body mass index, uh, avoiding diabetes and caries in the teeth and so on. So how can we reduce our sensual intentions and desire regarding food by contemplating the nature of food? It's very similar to the body. Once you watch an autopsy, one can nowadays do that, even in 4K on your video. And there's quite a bit of harm. Now watch, watch um, facelift. It's some of my favorite kind of Asuba movies. And there's plenty on, on YouTube because you know, the doctors want to advertise their services there. It's fascinating to see when they make the cut and then they just flip away the skin and then there's a little suction device. It's like a tiny 
vacuum cleaner and they're sucking in all the fat just accumulating under the skin. If you watch that, the essential desire and it just melts away. <laughs> and even if the woman who is having her face lifted actually still looking quite attractive and you may wonder why does she need a facelift at all. Once the skin flap is peeled away and the fat is sucked out, the sensuality diminishes straight away. And then it just gets pulled. And just like when you have a plastic bag, which is a little bit knitted up and with uh, many folds, and then you just stretch it. It's just the same principle. And it's been sewn back on. Or tummy tuck. <laughs> same on the stomach. No, so it's great to watch that. And sensuality will diminish. And the thought of also the, the perception of the impure nature of the human body is established and that is a part of the Kamasankapa, that is intentions and thoughts of letting go of renunciation. And we see the true nature of the body. With food it's just the same. Now take your favorite food, chew it, but maybe don't swallow it, but take it out again and then look at it. Is it still attractive? But this is what goes down into the stomach. No? What goes down into the stomach is not what the star cook is preparing there and what you see on your plate. What goes down into the stomach is what it looks like after you chewed it. And where's the beauty? Where's the attraction? And even from good friends, you know, when they pre-chew the meal for you, probably wouldn't appreciate. You know, this is not a service. You may appreciate you know, someone uh, uh, maybe buttering your toast. I remember once staying in, uh, in India with this uh, professor and his family, and I visited him, and very different from Germany, immediately invited me to stay in his home and then I ended up staying two weeks with them and they were very kind. And the lady of the house made a big effort in personally preparing the uh, food for me and the breakfast. And the Indian style, and so she would stand next to me and would personally serve me with the breakfast. <laughs> Which I could still appreciate, but uh, she would also butter my toast and being Indian style, she would just do that with her hand. So we should, should take two fingers, put them in the butter, and then put it onto my toast and spread it with her fingers, and then pass the toast onto me from my cultural conditioning. I was still happy eating it, but I was a bit amused. So what you appreciate, the service of someone that's pre-chewing the food for you. That's work, isn't it, no? But most people are not really into that. It becomes disgusting. So if you contemplate food in this way, um, sensuality will diminish. It will go away. You just have to look closely at these things, and at least mentally cut them open, what they really look like, and a lot of the sensuality goes away. We can also contemplate in terms of the four elements, 
must just build up of these four elements of earth, water, heat and wind. And none of them are particularly attractive. It's a more neutral attitude. We contemplate Asubha to develop intentions of renunciation, intentions of letting go. We deliberately establish the perception of the disgusting nature of the body or food. And the natural result from establishing this perception is that the intention of letting go arises. The Nekama Sankapo, the intention of renunciation and letting go, based on that perception. But if we contemplate the four elements, it's not quite so strong, it's more like a neutral thing. It's more like leaning towards equanimity. But equanimity is also letting go. Sometimes maybe even more profound than going for disgust, because disgust can also still be a form of attachment. So when we practice uh, asubha, contemplating the loathsome nature of the body or food or seemingly attractive objects, we have to be careful that we don't go towards disgust, but that we go towards what is called nanibita, a kind of uh, turning away, kind of repulsion. It doesn't come from aversion, but that comes from seeing things as they are. We talked about developing the Sama Sankapu, the right intention of renunciation and letting go, by simply developing another perception of what is loathsome, what is unattractive. And how do we develop non-evil and non-hatred? We develop loving-kindness, the Brahma-Vihara, the divine abode, the unconditional, non-judgmental intention of may all beings be happy and well, may all beings live at peace and at ease, and may all beings be able to achieve their wholesome aspirations, may all beings be safe and protected, may they be healthy and strong. So loving-kindness would be an excellent way of developing non-ill-will. All four Brahma-viharvas are excellent for that. The same for compassion. May all beings be freed from pain and suffering. May all beings be freed from trouble and difficulties. And then mudita, and rejoicing. So if someone is successful, particularly if they are successful in the wholesome way, and we really rejoice in it. We wish them that they may be able to sustain their success. We wish them that they may enjoy that success for a long time, that they be even more successful, that they get even more, that they accomplish more. 
And finally, uh, equanimity, you know, the midpoint between liking and disliking, rather than always responding with disliking and liking, we go right in the middle, avoiding these two. One thing which is quite striking to me when we look at the threefold training, the eightfold path can still be further summarized in the threefold training in virtue, in samadhi, and in wisdom. And then the Buddha assigned each path factor to one of the three trainings. And very interesting, the first two, wide view and white intention, they are part of the training in wisdom. And I think that for most people it's quite apparent why white view, the white understanding, white conviction, how that relates to the training in wisdom. But I think in our culture it's not immediately um, apparent why intention relates to wisdom. At least from my normal conditioning, I tend to think of wisdom more like in terms of perceptions and ideas, and not so much intention. Intention, I think, more in terms of action. And I think uh, this is a really important difference between purely you know, intellectual understanding and the wisdom the Buddha talks about. It's almost a sign of true wisdom that it changes our intention and then will express itself in speech and action. And the fact that the Buddha says that training in right intention is part of the training in wisdom to me indicates very clearly that the Buddha is not talking about a wisdom which is only in our heads, so to speak. It's not just a conceptual understanding. It's not just juggling with ideas and notions and concepts. It's a wisdom that has to express itself in intention. For example, in the intention of letting go. This is often the asset test for wisdom. Does some letting go happen? The real wisdom in terms of another Dhamma, not worldly wisdom, not streetwise, but the wisdom that sees the arising and passing away of things and that sees conditionality and impermanence and suffering and non-self, that wisdom is intricately linked with the intention of letting go. Okay, so far a few reflections on the factor of white intention, and uh, it looks like we're getting some questions coming in already. There's a question, does sensuality arise from trying to please the body? I think it's difficult to separate, we usually please both. Now the kosher one is actually the mind. Now because by pleasing the body, by having pleasant sensation in the body, we also get 
a feeling and feeling this is a mental thing. So even if you have a, the bodily sensation uh, going out into the warm sunshine on a beautiful day, that's a relative innocent form of sensuality, let's say sensuality. One can have a strong desire for that. I remember the desire for getting some sun onto your nose can be very strong if you live in a country not like Queensland but Germany, where you may not see the sun for weeks. And in a sense you can say, I want to please my body. But when the body is getting the sun, it feels nice, and then feeling is a mental factor. So ultimately, these sort of things, intention is something in the mind. Feeling is something in the mind. And the body is a tool for the mind to experience it all. So I would rather see the body simply as a tool for the mind to enjoy sensuality. I wouldn't say in a, uh, trying to please the body, but the body is trying to please the mind. Actually, I would turn it almost around. This is why we are in this body. Because the karma sankapo, that may appear so innocent, may, people may say, what is wrong about having some desire for eating some nice food? But you see, the, the very karma sankapo, the intention of sensuality, once you pass away, this is what gets you into another body. This is what stops you from, when you pass away, going right to Brahmaloka and just live in the samadhi realm of bliss. Or even better, uh, letting go of everything and experiencing uh, Nibbana directly. But it is this very intention of sensuality which is now we're looking for a tool. So you have the intention of sensuality, but without a body, how can you enjoy sensuality? Now you need the body to taste, you need the body to see material objects, you need the body to hear, to touch. So I see the body mostly as a tool of sensuality. And a lot of the body is quite large, and the, the senses, in comparison, smaller. But this is just the machinery in order to enable these uh, the six sense fields. And there's the very intention of sensuality, which lets us grasp at a new body, because we need that tool. So I would almost turn it around. Now the mind, particularly in the rebirth process, is in the grasping at the body to, to please itself, to please the mind through sensuality, and it's just using the body as a tool to enjoy sensuality. And consequently, you know, if any form of sensual intention has been abandoned, that is an anagami, a non-returner, this is why they don't take up a physical body anymore. And if it is suppressed through the practice of samadhi, even then the body or the person in the next life, they will not take up a physical body. But they are reborn as a Brahma in the realm of pure form. Because without sensual intention, sensual desire, there's no need for a body. It would be just... <laughs> Are we just a burden? What are they going to do with this thing? 
if you don't want to enjoy sensuality. Okay, Rukmani, one day could you explain the difference between sensuality and tanha? Yeah, both are very close. Uh, karma tanha is the first form of the craving, so a sensual craving. So uh, um, tanha would be even wider, only the first form of craving uh, would be essential craving. Uh, the, the next form of craving would be in a bhava tanha, the craving for becoming or craving for being or craving for existence. It's not easy to translate unambiguously. Now, this is something which the non-returner still has. This is why they don't attain Nibbana straight away. Now, there's still another year, some delusion of I and me. And connected with that, now, there's the becoming, the craving for being, the craving for I am, and to manifest that. But uh, usually sensuality is another major part of the craving. And then vibhavatana, the opposite, uh, the craving for annihilation. So both are very closely related, but uh, natana is somewhat wider, and only the first form of craving. The first form of tana is uh, sensual craving. But they're so close, and sometimes it may be quite difficult to distinguish that, whether you call it a central intention or whether you call it central craving. And as I would say, it's almost synonymous. There's not that much difference. I think for most contexts you can see them as closely close to synonymous. Any other anything on the video? Yeah, Hadi. You mentioned about um, say rejoicing in the success of others. Maybe just a comment on I guess in Australia we have we have the tall poppy syndrome. Why just maybe the downsides of sort of resenting the success of others might be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hardly mentions the Australian habit of uh, knocking down the tall pop, uh, poppies yeah. and knockers. Now, which means you know, someone who is successful or, or considers himself better than others you know, to cut them down to size, maybe all equal. I think Australia has a very strong culture uh, of the idea you know, that everyone should be equal. Now, um, I think one way of addressing that you know, would be through uh, Murita. So someone is standing out, particularly in a positive way. I mean, I have some sympathies for the knockers if someone is getting very big-headed. 
when the sign is big-headed and when you skillfully indicate to them that maybe they're not quite as fantastic as they think. No, I don't even think that's so unwholesome. But it can also manifest, uh, sometimes people are just, say, more hard-working or smarter. And because they're very smart and uh, spend their whole life you know, studying and working, and then they accomplish more and they have a higher income, uh, then trying to knock them down, I think that is quite unwholesome. I may have just been a little bit lazy, <laughs> so I'm not as successful, and then to resent that is basically envy and jealousy. And I would suggest now, that is obviously also in the mid-chance on Kappa, that is a wrong intention, envy and jealousy, as part of yeah, part of the Hingsa in some way. And the best way for countering that is in the Mudita, sympathetic joy, wishing others well, rejoicing in their success. Why do I have to feel that someone else being successful is somewhat diminishing what I have? Because I, particularly often a successful person, they don't take it away from me. <laughs> it's not that I have less now because they are successful. So what stops us now from being happy for them? The good thing is that with mudita, with sympathetic joy, we can experience so much happiness. It's like an unlimited reservoir for happiness. Because even on a day when I'm down or when things were going wrong for me, I can still think about the Buddha and what, what he accomplished. Or Ajahn Chah, or Lumpur Man, or even just, you know, say, the people who came today and offered the meal, what they did. They were quite happy coming out and making offerings for the Sangha. And I can rejoice in them. In this way, one can conquer what is called arati in Pali, the discontent. So sympathetic joy is a direct antidote to envy and jealousy. But it's also an excellent medicine against discontent. And the feeling of discontent is something we have to be very careful with. Um, in a particular monks, nuns, spiritual practitioners, because if you're in a busy lay life, that may look like paradise to just sit in the kuti all day in nature <laughs> and meditate. But once you do that day after day, there's some discontent may arise. And mudita is great for abandoning discontent. So it's a good, good example of these cutting down the tall poppies, the knockers, that can be a, a form of a, a wrong intention. And if it's connected with jealousy, envy, anger, aversion, that's clearly on the wrong side. It's not developing the path, but it's driving us into more suffering. So the opposite, the white intention, that is getting us out of suffering and developing the Eightfold Path, a sympathetic joy. However, that one works only if people do something that is wholesome, or at least neutral. 
if someone is successful as a gangster, you can't really can't really have a sympathetic joy with it. But you probably wouldn't want any of them anyhow. Yeah, it, it probably comes up because I don't know, sometimes it feels like, say, for as a Westerner and looking into a different sort of belief system and whatnot, you can maybe feel like to others you're the poor poppy, you know, <laughs> you other people will cut you down for trying to explore a philosophy or to try and become a better person yourself or something. Yeah. Out of the out of the norm of what the culture allows. So it's a Western sort of dilemma approaching Buddhism in a way. So I mean to have a little bit uh, philosophical or spiritual approach and to think about what's the meaning of life, what's the point of it all, that would already qualify you as a tall poppy in Australian culture. You need to be cut down to just do the normal thing and the conventional square bear normal life. Yeah, that would be a very, uh, I know it's an application of knocking down tall poppies. I took it always more like for people who are really kind of conceited or arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's more anyone that stands out in any way, shape mm-hmm. or form, mm-hmm. you know, at all, that just stands out. It's easy to, easy to spot. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, don't allow yourself to be cut down then. <laughs> <laughs> Don't allow yourself to be cut down. It's interesting, uh, Ajahn Dhammadawa, I think, talked about that uh, on Vesak. The Buddha had this dream just before enlightenment, which he also understood as a dream telling him now it's going to happen. And I think he had had this creeper growing out of his of his uh, Naval, I think, uh, go into the sky. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now this is the tallest poppy you can do. Yeah. <laughs> you put a, a can't, can't stand out more than that. Mm-hmm. And it can be a little bit frightening. But anyway, you don't have to become a Buddha anyhow. You only have to be a disciple. So much easier for us. And if you contemplate now how many thousands and millions have been practicing, there's actually nothing so outstanding. It's maybe a little bit unusual in our society here, here in Brisbane, Queensland, and Kolo. In that sense, there are probably tall poppies in Kolo, I assume. Ajahn Dhammadawa just mentioned he went for a walk yesterday along Lake Manchester Road. And he said he met uh, two people stopped their car and approached them and inquired whether he is a Buddhist monk and what that all means and where we are, and they wanted to learn about uh, Buddhism and what we are doing. And he said uh, he had many walks in the monastery in Melbourne, in Warburton, and it's outside of Melbourne, 90 kilometers. But he never had that happening there. But I guess in Warburton, which is quite a touristy area for people from Melbourne to go out, uh, he's not as much a tall poppy, so to speak, as here in, in Kolo, walking along the street. 
But these people did the opposite, and they developed uh, a white intention. And they saw someone sticking out and looking very different. I mean, not tall poppy usually implies neither higher, but just sticking out and by looking different. They had the right intention of inquiring and trying to learn something. I think that is more skillful than trying to cut that person down and to live the normal square their life again. So maybe you can convince the knockers that they can learn something from you mm-hmm. rather than trying to cut you down. You can't go too tall in your little kuti anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the knockers are concerned, you can tell them that your kuti is on the 2.1 meter medium height from the ground to the top externally. So it's difficult to see how you can rise two tall poppies in such a small kuti. <laughs> You're more coming in. Do we get rid of sensuality by seeing the danger? Yeah, another Ardina, but it's one way of doing it, one way of approaching it. The Buddha gave us many reflections on that. He said uh, the sensuality is just like a bone. And you have a very skillful butcher or butcher apprentice, and they remove every last piece of meat from that bone. And then they throw that bone to a dog. And now the, the fragrance of the meat is there, and the dog is so hungry. And he tries to gnaw on that bone, but there's not a single little bit of meat. He doesn't get any satisfaction. That is one of the dangers, one of the Ardinava in sensuality. It's a little bit like this dog not trying to chew this bone. It never gives satisfaction. Why the dog is chewing, the fragrance is there, and he gets even more hungry. It's the same as sensuality. The more we indulge, the more the craving will become. Now, this is a tanna again, what Rukmani asked about. So we indulge in sensuality, and the tanna grows, the craving grows more and more. Another simile is the piece of meat which you throw to one of the crows, or maybe the butcher birds. We just had the butcher bird at the buffet yesterday. He looks very cute, and if you're a human being, if you're a little lizard, the butcher bird is no longer cute. He will just come and kill you. So this simile is you throw a little piece of meat, and one crow gets it, and flies off, but there's other crows, there's butcher birds, and there may be hawks, and they're all going after this crow now. And unless the crow quickly lets go, he may be in big trouble. Not sure whether you ever walked out at night, going out at night with a super attractive girl. You understand what is meant by that simile. Because all the other blocks are white, white there, and I don't want to get there. Probably the same if you exchange the, the genders there. 
Now, if you have a Ferrari and you park it, and then a huge throng of people around it, now there's always this danger you know, that others want to go for it. Sensuality always puts you into competition and and into danger that others want to take it away from you. No, what was in a, another reflection? It's just like a dream. Before you know, you wake up and it's all over. Now the parties, I'm a monk now for almost a quarter century. There's parties from more than a quarter century ago, never what is left. Some faint memories. Another ordeal of sensuality, just like a dream, all gone and over. And so on. So I totally agree in contemplating the danger in sensuality. And curiously, it always has got a, a, a sort of speak, side effects. All the stuff that is most fun is exactly where it can get big problems. Sensuality, you know, people like it, but you can get children from that, you can get sexually transmitted diseases from that. Food is very nice, but you can uh, get diabetes from that, you can get obese from that. And exactly the nicest food often is the one which is often the most unhealthy, isn't it? It's nice listening to music you know, in full volume on a wave. Unfortunately, it destroys your faculty of hearing, and when you're in your 50s, you may have got all these buzzing sounds, all these peeping sounds in your ear, and you can't hear anymore. So it's absolutely curious. You now, all central indulgence has usually a bad side effect. There's non central indulgence, samadhi doesn't have these bad negative side effects, but has actually positive side effects. By indulging in samadhi, you know, the body will even be more healthy and strong, and of course the mind even more so. So thank you so much for that comment. So contemplating the ardhinava, contemplating the danger, is exactly what gets that out of it. So when you have the big chocolate cake in front of you and your body mass index is already very unsatisfactory, you just bring up the image of your scales. 100 kg <laughs> or 150 or whatever frightens you there. And immediately the central desire for the chocolate cake will fade away when you have that image of stepping on the scales and the scales showing 150 kilo. Ajahn, does white intention have mainly an emotional aspect to it? Uh, uh, emotion, feeling, intention, are they always connected? You always have all the five groups of clinging. And whenever you have an intention, there's also consciousness, there's also feeling, there will be emotions. Ideally, one should develop right intentions and it should feel good. 
but sometimes it takes some work to get get to that stage. And unfortunately, you know, the wrong intentions can sometimes feel good. And most people probably find that feels good and gives them a nice emotion and a nice feeling like eating a chocolate cake or doing other sensual stuff. So um, we have to uh, separate these two. And sometimes you know, the right intention may not feel good, but we still develop it, because in the long run it will feel better. And sometimes the wrong intention, you know, they say you know, uh, revenge is the sweetest satisfaction, or things like that, you know, the sweetness of taking revenge. It may feel very sweet, you know, but it will turn bitter later in the future from the karma consequences. But we have to be aware of the so how it feels is not a good gauge. And sometimes the wrong intentions may feel very pleasant. And the right intentions sometimes may feel quite difficult. For example, someone hurts and harms you and you try to develop metta. You're trying to do that and it may feel quite difficult. But we have to ask, now, what feels better in the long run? And on that one, you can be sure, if you consistently practice right intention, you will create lots of good karma. And then in the long run, you will have all kinds of happy and pleasant feelings and emotions. If you practice and the bad, wrong intentions, the opposite, it may feel good right now by doing it. But in the end, you know, the karmic results will be so painful that one would regret it badly if one could still relate it to the original karma. Oops. Hi, Ajahn. Why exactly is centrality dangerous? Alcohol, drugs, that one would probably be very easy to see. What is the danger in alcohol and drugs? What is the danger in uh, wingsuit driving? Uh, Sorry, wingsuit diving, the skydiving with these wingsuits. Obviously, a very exhilarating experience. But I think Harley mentioned most of the guys doing that know at least half, half a dozen friends who have died already and a few years later they die themselves. You know, why do we have so many people struggling with obesity and with diabetes and with the heart attacks and with other sicknesses which come from central overindulgence? The other thing is it may tempt us in the breaking precepts. Now I may want this very central, um, but whatever, maybe uh, uh, handbag or shoes or whatever, or, or iPhone, I don't have the money. 
And this is a very central desire that drives us to break the precepts. So one danger and centrality is that it can be the very incentive and motivation or cause that we are breaking precepts. We're breaking the, the third precept. It's usually caused by sensuality. People lie through their teeth to get what they desperately want. People take drugs and intoxicants because it gives them good feelings. Some people even kill because it feels good. Fishing, hunting. Some people may even enjoy war. At least as long as they're not shot at themselves, as long as they're just maybe only, only flying a drone, <laughs> bombing from the drone. But uh, interestingly, even the guys who are operating the drones and are in no danger, they have found that they still get post-traumatic stress and very fascinating and almost like a proof of karma. So uh, I would recommend, or I would suggest, the one danger or why is sensuality dangerous? Because it can cause us to break the precepts. And secondly, because we are taking all these side effects. Cause. Sensuality, a major cause of rebirth? Question mark. Exactly. This is the greatest danger. So even if you manage to keep your sensuality within the five precepts and you're not really making much bad karma, and even if you manage to be restrained in your sensuality that you don't get all these negative side effects, you eat only a little bit of chocolate cake so that you don't get obese or diabetic and so on. You constantly restrain yourself, but you're still attached you still need a body for doing that. And then when you pass away, you will get reborn because of a central craving. And once we understand the endless circle of samsara and the sheer unlimited amount of suffering which beings go through in this beginningless circle of samsara, now the danger of rebirth is absolutely frightening. And that is a danger even in Devaloka. A lot of what I pointed out as dangers doesn't really apply in Devaloka. In the heavenly world, they can indulge without these negative side effects. Uh, they can indulge a lot without making precepts. But once their good karma is up, they're still subject to rebirth. They can't end it, even the, the Devas. Okay, I think we are an hour now, and unless there's another question, oh, yes, one more, one more. Have to be to be aware always of the possibility of centrality. Yes, yes. Now this is the most sticky one of the three root defilements, the delusion, hatred, and sensuality. Sensuality is the most sticky one. Because as Malikana was asking, uh, because it, it, it feels often good. <laughs> it 
it can be quite enjoyable. It can give you lots of nice, very pleasant feelings. It can be very enjoyable emotion, sensuality. Buddha doesn't deny that. He's only saying that the danger is greater. The, door, the drawback is greater and outweighs the advantages. But he's not denying that there's asada, the gratification and sensuality. And because of that, it is very sticky, gluey, and it's not easy to take that out of one's heart. And one, uh, if one sharpens one's mindfulness through the practice, one will notice more and more how almost everything is connected with that. It's also compared to um, not just stickiness, but also being... Uh, Soaking wet. It's like when you take a sponge and you, you put a little bit into water, and this whole sponge is sucking in the water and becomes wet. Or if you have a piece of paper and even a little bit of moisture, and then the whole paper becomes wet, is sucking that in. It's seeping into the mind. But just like moisture is seeping into a house and it's not really well sealed, the roof. So I totally agree, we have to be aware of centrality all the time and uh, go against that, at least as a renunciant, as a monk or as a nun, or as anyone who wants to develop samadhi. That's another danger of centrality, and it keeps you out of samadhi. Once we can um, free ourselves from central desire, or at least suppress it, the samadhi becomes relatively easy. The biggest obstruction for samadhi is the sensuality. So anyone who really wants to develop samadhi will have to be on the lookout. Our sensuality is constantly seeping into the mind and how the mind is constantly going out into sensuality. As one of the main tasks for developing samadhi, one of the main tasks for being a monk or a nun.